right, friends, Greg Kogel here, and thank you for joining me. This is uh, my last time with you live before Christmas. Well, certainly before Christmas. That's this week, and Christmas is next week. There are some some shows we put in the queue for next week for you uh, that we'll be sending to you if you've uh, you know subscribed to the podcast. But um, this is my last live show uh, before the end of the year, so um, I'm I'm having haven't quite gotten into the Christmas spirit yet. We did get a uh, Christmas tree the other night. Now, some of you know that I just had some surgery on my foot, so I'm scooting around on a scooter or on crutches. I can't really help with the big stuff. Um, actually, my wife even has to wrap most of the presents because I usually wrap them in my shop in the garage or my table. I can't get into my shop with the contraptions I have to use to get around. So, uh, it just uh, it still feels like work, and, and uh, maybe Christmas spirit will show up in a couple of days. But I did spend um, I did spend a little time the other day just reading in the birth narrative in, in Luke, and uh, I, I love uh, I love that those I love that that whole passage, that whole section. It's just something that many of us are aware of from when we were children, whether we're in a Christian home or not, because there are passages there that have worked themselves into the uh, the culture, the cultural uh, exercise of or celebration of Christmas, and I don't mean holidays the way many have made it to be, but Christmas itself. And I, I also—one thing that I that occurred to me— um, after I had become a believer, and I don't know, I'd been a Christian five, six, seven years or something, but we were out caroling as a group door to door, and I was singing songs that I had sung for, you know, years before as a non-believer, just in keeping with the season, without really paying any attention to the words. And this time, for some reason, the words just jumped out at me because now I was personally invested in the story that these words in these uh, Christmas carols represented. And I saw the un- unbelievable sublimity of the language, the way these were written, and the theology that was in them, and the appeal that they represented. And it just struck me as odd that I had sung these songs for so many years without even realizing what they were about, not in terms of the depth of their significance or in terms of their, uh, their, their, their uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, just the gravity, the gravitas of these words. And it also, a, a less um, bright reflection dawned on me that there are going to be people that will be standing before Jesus, and he will not be there as their Lord, but as their judge. And it just occurred to me, will it come to mind the many times that the words of truth were on their lips in the form of Christmas carols, and it never sunk in? They never took it seriously. They were saying the words with their mouth that would save them if they believed them. But they were just singing songs, and now it's too late. Somber thought. Somber thought. 
Uh, I have a question here I want to go to before I uh, go to the callers. And uh, this has to do with Romans 8.28. Now, this is a very well-known passage. And it is, it is quoted um, frequently regarding trials and tribulations that we go through, but I think it's frequently misunderstood as well. It's a magnificent promise, but it's often truncated when people quote it. Or or maybe it's uh how would you call it? Like it's it's abbreviated or paraphrased. Everything works out for good. That would be one paraphrase. Or God works everything out for good, which would be another paraphrase, maybe a little bit closer to an accurate one but still not quite accurate, all right? And the question or the challenge that will often come up from Christians is that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. That's more of the truncated verse. But what happens when things don't work out? Illness or death or other terrible things while working for God's purpose. It's like God has removed our protection over them. And um, this is a, uh, this particular question was included in a group where people were asked, what is, what is the most difficult, the hardest aspect of Christian, Christianity to defend? Now, this is something I've worked with personally a lot, Romans 8.28, and the concern, if God's going to work things out for good, then why does it seem like they're not working out for good? And we're Christians. What happened? And my response is, the problem is, you didn't keep reading. Because here's the whole verse. For we know that God causes all things to work for good, together for good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, for, keep going, right? Those whom He foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Now, it doesn't matter what you believe about salvation, whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist or whatever, to understand this passage. This passage says that God is guaranteed, if you are a believer, if you are a regenerate believer, if you are called according to God's purpose, that there is an end for your life that God has guaranteed you will achieve. He is guaranteed to take the circumstances in your life and use them to make you more like His Son. Now, I think there's some mystery there, because when we all die, we're going to see Him as He is, we're going to have resurrected bodies, we will be like Him, all of that. So how could it matter how much more like Him we are in this life if we're all going to be made more just exactly like Him through the power of the resurrection? I don't know. But I know this is what it says. I just can't do the calculus for you. Paul says that all godliness—no, let me back up. Paul says that, and this is in 1 Timothy, physical exercise profits a little. Go out and pump iron at the gym, do your jog, whatever you do. Okay, that's going to bring you some benefit. 
got that. But by contrast, godliness is great benefit because it holds a promise. Now watch this. Not only for this life. So if you're godly in this life, you bear the fruit of that in this life. But, Paul says, also for the life to come. In other words, in some sense, what happens in this life is producing something good in your life to come. In fact, he says, use that same language in 2 Corinthians 4. For we, uh, for momentary light affliction, it didn't seem like momentary and light to Paul at the moment, but he was looking at the long picture, not the short one. Not this lifetime only, but rather to eternity. That was momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And see, we think sometimes that we are here uh, to, to satisfy all of our desires in this life. And when we become Christian, we know there's more to it, but sometimes we still are tied down to that perspective, to that understanding that it's, you know, this is, uh, you only have one life to live, grab all the gusto you can. How did that beer commercial go? So, uh, and, and, and certainly that's all that the non-believer has, especially the atheist who acknowledges no afterlife whatsoever. This is it. But if you understand how reality is structured, the world according to God, you realize this isn't all there is. This is just the beginning for everyone, by the way. But what happens in this life is what determines what happens in the next life. And as J.P. Moreland once said, that God is using this life to make us fit to spend eternity with Him. And so I mentioned that this issue is close to me now because of things happening in my own life and reflecting here now at 73 years old, on the nature of my life with Christ over all these 50 years now, and how I view the long, the, 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 or how I take the long view. And so when things don't work out, like I'm, I got a crutches right now. <laughs> I'm scooting around on a scooter and I'm going to the wherever doing my thing on crutches. So something's not working out here. My body's falling apart. Every year I change, exchange it for a newer part. That's what I just did for my foot. But, uh, you know, I can hold that back a little bit, but sooner or later, old age is going to get me. That's just the way it works. And then I'll die. And other things can happen, disappointments. Those aren't examples of God forgetting us. Those aren't examples of God not keeping His promise. It's those things that He goes through with us that is the way He keeps His promise to use those things to make us more like Jesus. And this has had a tremendous effect on my ability to face challenges and trials in my life. To know that my suffering is not for naught— and that the payoff is not going to necessarily be in this life. This is boot camp. God is good for His purposes, His promises, to accomplish His purposes. He's good for that. But the payoff is not on this end. The payoff is beyond. It's after this life. And we, we 
may we have ups and downs in this life. But when we look at Romans 8.28, the reminder ought to be to us, it seems to me, that this life is not the only life we have. This life is being used by God to make us into someone else, and into like like His Son Jesus. And, and that may mean that the plans that we have for this life are not going to go the way we expected. We are not going to accomplish what we thought in professional things, in, in recreational things, in our punch list or bucket list or whatever you want to call it, and in our relationships, because we live in a fallen world. And that's why this promise from Romans 8 is so important, because when we face illness and terrible things described here in this question, this concern, these are the very things that God is going to use for us to accomplish His goal and purpose. And this is what I remind myself of time and time again. What is your right response in this situation, Greg, to honor God and accept what He's offered you and try to learn from it and satisfy the audience of one so that when the dust settles, what I hear are the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I stand on Romans 8.28, especially when things are hard, especially when they're difficult, especially when they don't go as I planned. And I think that's the reason that God put that verse in the Bible to begin with. Let's take a quick break, and then we have callers on board. We'll be getting to you guys shortly. Stay with us. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Allen, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. If a person who identifies as transgender asks you to use their preferred pronouns, should you honor that request? Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. All right, with 
that riff, we'll go to our first callers, and it's our friend, Mr. Cade. How you doing, Cade? Hey, Mr. Coco. I'm doing all right. How are you? Uh, I'm doing all right, too. This is my last show before the holidays, so I'm looking forward to relaxing a little bit. I got most of my purchases out of the way. My wife's going to be wrapping the gifts because I'm on crutches, and so uh, maybe I'll just be like eating sausage and cookies and whatever. I don't know, but I'm looking forward to resting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That sounds, and I'll be praying for your foot as well. Yeah, well, I got two months that I have to be off it, but hopefully by mid-February I'll be raring to go for all the events I have then. Certainly, yeah. So what's on your mind today, Cade? Well, so Mr. Coco, I wanted to just talk to you a little about, and we've talked a little bit about this before, your reading process when you go through and you um, are going through the books you read. Uh-huh. You wrote an article a while back talking about, like, layering your reading, going through multiple times at different paces. Right. Um, I wanted to ask a little, a couple of specific questions on that. Okay. But in general, I just, I just want to know a little more about what you do to absorb the things you read so that it's not just reading it superficially and being like, I have a basic understanding of it, but rather, like, you, the word you use in the article is... Uh, master reading. So I was wondering if you could just briefly go over that part. Say that, that last part again. I just missed it. The, the word I used was what? Uh, mastering the book. Mastering oh, mastering the, the book. Yes, right. Um, yes, that's really important. I, I learned quite a bit from uh, this wonderful book called How to Read a Book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name who wrote it. You know, he was part of the uh, the whole. Adler. Yeah, yeah, Mortimer Adler too, and 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 he's a guy who wrote that book, How to Read a Book, and then I incorporated a number of things into my own style, and also I wrote about it in that piece that you read. And I, I'll have to say, I'm not completely consistent with the uh, with with that pattern that I described there. But uh, what I've found for me to remember things is I I try to I read slowly. Okay, and I read slowly on purpose because I'm trying to understand the material in the book, and I'm trying to interact with the author. And I read with a marker of some sort. In my case, it's a number two Ticonderoga pencil. And I have a little pencil sharpener next to me. For some reason, I like the pencil, and I make marks. And if I want to erase it, I can. I don't use a highlighter anymore. I just I'll underline. And I think the most the 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 most important principle in that article that I wrote that was really uh, based on Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book, is going over in a a couple of layers, all right, and uh, reading in a a little bit of a disciplined way, and I'll explain exactly what I mean, that it's really helpful to go through a book, and again, I'm not always consistent on this, but to go through with a a skim read or a brief—actually, he calls it a pre-read— and then he says, like you're turning pages, like, you know, one page a second or two or three seconds. I, I can't go that fast because the stuff in the book, it looks interesting. And so I'll pause and read. But I might take an hour to do my pre-read if I'm going to just devote a whole hour to pre-reading a book. But the thing is, what, that's kind of like tilling the soil. You Now you have an idea of what the book is about and where it's going. And I think in the piece that I wrote, I said, write a brief two or three page summary that captures the intent or the purpose of the book. Finish the sentence that starts, this book is about, mm-hmm. you know, dot, dot, dot. And then you're, you're reminding your mind 
about the details of the substance of the book and the point of the book, okay? And then uh, when you do, when I do a, a regular read, then I, I read every word, with a few exceptions. Sometimes I'll skip, but if I'm reading it really thoroughly, I'm going to read all the words, and I'm going to be marking with a little vertical mark on the margin, something that I might normally take the time to underline. The problem with underlining when you're doing your read is that it takes time. It cuts your pace down, and so you're slowing down, and then sometimes you're regressing, you're rereading what you already read. What you want to do is you just want to keep reading without losing your pace. But if there's something that's significant, make a little mark on the side, a horizontal mark, I'm sorry, a vertical mark right along those sentences that you want to take a second look at. And then after you've read the first chapter, go back and reread those places that you marked, and then you can underline. And what you're doing is you're getting the most important thing multiple times, all right? And then the last step, and this is more the abbreviated version, the last step is to try to summarize at the beginning of the chapter what the chapter is about, the claim it's making or how it's making. And sometimes I'll even make a little outline on the on the facing page if there's room to do that, three points in this outline. So that would be a very... That would be the way to th- read a book very thoroughly, all right? Now, some books don't lend themselves to that, like fiction doesn't lend itself to that, or some mm-hmm. kinds of uh, biography, or I, I wouldn't do that with the rise and fall of the Third Reich, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did mark my rise and fall at certain points in the margin where I thought important points were made, something that I wanted to mull over a little bit and think about. And so... Um, uh, you know, I have those spots I can go back to and and review them if I want to. Once you've done that work, you've kind of gone over the important material three times, basically, for, in your first preview, and then your read, and then your post view. You know, while you're you're underlining where you did the little marks in the margin, and I always interact with the with the writer. If something comes to mind, I'll jot it down in the margin. Uh, and it could be a, you know, whatever, whatever comes to mind. Like I thought, oh, that's like this, or really? I no, I don't think so. You know, I'm just interacting with the with the uh, right. material, because that interaction ties me more the material to the material, and it helps me to process that information better in a more thorough way. I remember it more. It's it's actually going to be your second or third time through the material with the aid of your marks that you're really going to get, have it sink into your mind, and where you're really going to own it. Um, but since the first couple times you're reading fairly quickly, and you also did the preview, which is really important because you know where you're going, you know where the author's going, because you've already had this quick, quick step through the text, through the book, it's going to be more effective when you slow down and read the whole thing. So that's, I mean, that's, in general, the way I do things. Um, if I'm if I'm reading, sometimes I'm reading a book for an interview. Like I'm reading Jay Warner Wallace's uh, new book. For, this is for an endorsement. When I endorse books, you know, I read them pretty carefully because um, I'm giving it my endorsement. But sometimes I, I my eye can see that there's a paragraph here that that I don't need to read. It's a reference right. to something. I just, I just jump right over it. And I move. So my I can see these certain things, titles or references or facts or something I don't that I don't care about. 
then I'll just jump over it. So I don't read what I think is superfluous to my understanding of the book. And your eyes can oftentimes catch that stuff as you're reading through it. And I just jump. And that allows me to move a little faster. But that's the general idea of how I read. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had, if you don't mind, I just had a couple specific questions to to ask on that. Is first of all, in terms of, because you talked about skimming. Um, there are there are like some books where if you take for example a C.S. Lewis book where it's like just chapter numbers and text, uh-huh. there's there's no way to um, you know look at subheadings, look right. at chapters. Um, and the other exception would be books that are like um, like the Big Theistic Evolution book by Moreland Meyer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know where it's a thousand pages that you would have to skim through. What do you do with exceptions like those where it's either like there's it's very hard to pinpoint summaries like through subsections, or it's very long. Um, do you change your method in any way? Well, in the Lewis example, um, and there's a lot of books that will fall into that category, here's a, a fairly easy way to do this. You read the topic sentences of paragraphs. Mm. Because a good writer um, delineates—excuse uh, me, distinct ideas with the paragraph. That's the whole idea. You have— you have these paragraphs that are of like things, and then when you change your transition, you go to another one. And generally, the first sentence of the paragraph is the subject sentence. That's just good writing. And so, um, when you're reading a good writer, somebody who's crafted it well, you can you can follow the main ideas by by quickly looking at the first sentence of the paragraphs. When it comes to a book like um, Theistic Evolution, I mean, that's just a massive tome. Mm-hmm. And, and it's got a lot of technical information, and you just can't do that. What I would look at is the uh, the table of contents. And, and incidentally, I think that um, that in how to read a book, the one of the recommendations is first read the table of contents. Just look through right. the table of contents. I also take a quick look at the index to see the kinds of things or who's being quoted or whatever in the back. It just familiarizes me with the book a little bit more, and. Um, uh, so, or or read if the introduction that the author gives to the material or the preface isn't too long, I'll read that because that is meant by the author or the writer of the of foreword. For example, you have introductions, you have forewords, and you have prefaces. You know, they tend to be a little different, but they function to give you an introduction to the rest of the material. So maybe in three or four or five pages, you can just read that piece, and sometimes it's only two or three pages, and that is meant to give you a sense of what's to come, and that's good for you to have that in advance. But I do—I'm not going to—a book the size of uh, uh, Theistic Evolution, I'm, I'm going to look at the, the titles of the chapters and the sections to give me a sense, not by breezing through it, because you don't breeze through a thousand pages— Right. Of material like that. Okay. And then my other question for you, Mr. Kolko, is more about interaction with the text. Uh-huh. Um, you were talking about how you mark up the books. I've been doing that for several years now. Have you ever, or do you think it would be helpful or find it helpful to have notes or interactions with um, the book outside the text? And what I mean by that is... Um, like J.P. Moreland, for example, I'm pretty sure he takes his notes on books on legal pads. Uh-huh. Um, is, do you find that, that that is helpful in 
conjunction with marginalia. I, I don't know if you have an opinion or anything. Yeah, I do. I, I don't. I don't use legal pads. That's just another piece of paper floating around in my office that I got to do something with. That's kind of the way I look at that. Um, but what I do is I take notes on things that occur to me that are important in the back pages. So every book, the way books are printed, their book they're they're printed in in like certain configurations of pages. So like in maybe in multiples of eight, for example, and this is how how they uh, um, you know cut and slice and bind and all that other thing, you know, with the bigger pieces to smaller pieces. But in any event, there's a certain allotment there, which means that when you get to the very end of the book, you probably have four or five blank pages. Those were the leftovers, right? Or sometimes in the beginning, you'll have one too. And I use those back pages to take notes on. Mm-hmm. And I start in the very last one, and I start at the top. So if I'm reading a book for the purpose of an interview, or even to do an endorsement, as I'm reading and some thoughts occur to me, like a question I might ask the uh, the author for the interview, or something that I might say, a reaction that I have to the content, I just write that in the back of the book. Keep writing and writing and writing. You can take books off my shelf and you'll see all this writing that I've done there. Sometimes it's reflection on the text, some ideas that occur to me. I'll tell you one thing that was a really sad event for me is I had taken C.S. Lewis's uh, the, the, the book of essays that's titled by its first essay, Weight of Glory. Yeah, yeah. And I had devoured that book and made notes all over and all kinds of notes in the back of the book. And I was going to use these reflections in the story of reality. And I left the book on an airplane. And I never oh, saw wow. it again. So I had to buy the book again, and I had to try to remember what I'd written down because I was going to use that stuff. Because when I'm reading and thinking about it, that's when, I, in a sense, I'm on the move. That's when my the best material comes to me, and I don't want to lose it, so I'm going to write it down. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's what I do. I, I just write it in the book so it's all together. If you're doing a okay. very long analysis, you probably have to get some more some more pages. And that's okay, too. Just take the pages and stuff them in the book, fold them and have them stuck them so you don't have them sitting around somewhere else. Anyway, Mm -hmm. does that help? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, And the final thing I wanted to leave here with, Mr. Kolko, is it sounds like you really emphasize reading a book well compared to reading a bunch of books. So what would you recommend in terms of making a daily reading practice? Because a lot of people are like, you know, you need to read five, ten books every week, every month in yeah, order to I, learn a lot. Um, yeah, I, anyway. don't have a, I don't have a goal like that. But I, uh, what I try to do is, um, and I think I say this in the article, I, I try to rescue uh, little pieces of time for the purpose of reading, okay? And uh, so, you know, when I go to bed at night, I'm almost always reading something. I read for 15 or 20 minutes, and it helps me to wind down and then fall asleep. But that's how I got through the the rise and fall, you know. Now, that's not the best kind of material to be reading when you're trying to get to sleep. But nevertheless, I was able to finish that thousand pages or whatever, you know, uh, by that process. And uh, so there are are little bits of time. If I go to, to the doctor's office, right? And I either have my computer with me or I've got a book because I'm not going to sit there and, you know, look at the screens, whatever they got up. You know, I'm going to try to make useful use of that. And I do try to limit my reading, my professional reading, to the good stuff. 
and uh, I have things that I read for fun, and that's that's a whole different genre of, of reading, so to speak. I'm just doing it to enjoy myself. But if I'm working, uh, reading for my my craft, then I'm going to be careful about the books that I read because I can't I can't read everything, and some things I've got to read. Like when colleagues write books and I have to endorse it, or they're asking for an endorsement and I'm willing to do that, or um, if I'm going to do an interview. Um, but then when it comes to other things, there's usually titles that are kind of front and center that uh, that are going to help me uh, get kind of a good look at it. Like, uh, um, you know, the right. Let's see, the rise and triumph of the of the uh, modern modern self. self. Yeah, that 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 book. Uh, it's too big. I own it, but it's just too big. There's another one that he wrote, the author wrote, uh, that I think is uh, that's a little easier. I had that one, too. So when I deal with this issue and I need to do some more work in that, I'm going to read the shorter issue because I think that'll give me what I need. So you have to make wise choices there. At how are you going to spend your time? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, awesome. Kate. Thank you so much, Mr. Coco. It was it's, very helpful. Okay. It's great talking to you and hope to see you, you before well, too long. All right. Bye-bye now. Yeah, Merry Christmas. A Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas to you, buddy. Bye-bye now. All right. See ya. All right. Let's take a quick break and then back with more calls. Hey, friends. Would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate. Kind of in the stretch here. Got a couple more calls on board, so let's go to Larry. And Larry has a question I have never been asked before. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Um, I had called you in September about starting a uh, apologetics group, mm-hmm. and I wanted to let you know that just last week, week before last, Robin Asset set myself up as a uh, a uh, Outpost director. Oh, so good for you. you know Smart choice. Yeah. Oh, so, that's great. It's a great way to go. Yep. Good so for you. I hope to start that after the first year. Okay. Sounds great. Um, but the question I have, and I've uh, encountered this with a family member I was talking to, and then someone else I was talking to about the gospel, uh, and it was Noah's Ark. Uh huh. 
and I'm just trying to track down some good apologetic material on Noah's Ark. So what in particular are you thinking about? Uh, what's well, the challenge the, the that biggest, you need? Yeah, the biggest thing I hear is uh, all those animals on one boat, and you know, I realize there probably weren't all the species that we have today back then. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But that's that's probably the biggest thing I hear. Okay. Um, I think there's a misunderstanding that this this might help you, and the misunderstanding is that um, every single kind of animal that existed at the time was represented at the on the ark, which would be pretty hard. Um, uh, so you don't need. And when you read the text, you see that there were there were limitations. And by the way, the, I think the 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 word that is used to describe how, individuating the animal group, so to speak, or you can't use species because that's a modern term, uh, was the word kind, a certain type of kind. So you would have, you don't have to have every breed of dog. You just need to be have the the uh, the the dog kind, if you will. All right, the right. primitive form of dog, mama and a daddy dog. That's it. Um, and so I remember reading. Um, I'm trying to think I, the, this book uh, by one of the young Earth guys. Uh, just his, I think it's John Morris, and it was called the the uh, I think it was called the flood or the Noah, Noah flood. What do you know? The title of that book was. I have it on my rack. I still have it. But I think John Morris wrote it. He's not alive anymore, I don't I don't think. But or maybe it's called The Flood of Noah or something like that. But what he did is he went through all of the particulars, the biblical particulars, and the kinds of things that might have been um might might have been the the case for Noah when he's gathering all these creatures. Um you have Actually, I mean, there's actually a couple of different issues that are going on here. One of them is whether the flood was global, which most young earthers believe, or whether it was a local flood that was meant to destroy all human beings that lived at the time in that local area, but had not expanded to other parts of the globe. Now, there's discussion about this, and people have different points of views about it. But if it was a local flood, and I tend to hold to that view— I think that's certainly defensible, given the text. Um, then you have a lot fewer animals that have to be represented. And they were they were animals of certain categories that were represented, too. I'm just kind of think of the title of that. John Morris is the one who wrote it, but I, I, the flood of Noah, the, the Genesis, no, it's called the Genesis flood or something like that. In any event, he did the math on this, and I think he believed in a global flood, uh, but nevertheless, he still was able to do the math on the size of the ark and show how it is possible to get the kinds of animals in the ark that God specified. It was possible. So um, as long as it's plausible, possible, whatever, then I, then I think we've, we've answered the challenge. Uh, if, if it was a localized flood, just because the the purpose of the flood was to judge humankind, and if humankind was not spread all over the globe, but just in a much smaller area, a local flood could accomplish the task that God had intended for it, and that's to destroy all the human beings that were alive at that time, 
save the eight that were in the uh, in the ark. So um, I think the Genesis flood. I'm still working with it now. I think the title, Amy, can you check to see if on Amazon the Genesis flood by John Morris, if that's the title of it. Um, if I were in my study, I could grab it right away because I know right where it's sitting, but I haven't looked at it for a while. I was impressed, though, about the chapter in which he dealt with these issues. And plus, you don't have to—do you see it there? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's John Whitcomb and Henry—oh, Henry Morris. There you go. That's why I got it wrong. John Whitcomb and Henry Morris. Oh, got it right. Um, and that is called The Genesis Flood. And so that book is still available, Whitcomb and Morris, The Genesis Flood, and they do the math. And I just remember at the time that I was impressed by the work that they did. People kind of have this this notion in mind that every type of animal across the whole globe had to be inside this smallish boat. And it, the, when you do the math and you look carefully at the text, they seem to fit. Now, especially if it's a global, it's a localized flood, then one only has to account for animals of the kind specified in a locality, not the entire globe. Right. right. So that's the that's what I would do. I, and I, you know, there, if a person wants to reject the flood, um, I'm I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I don't yeah. think that's the and, most important part of Scripture. You know, yeah, I believe in the flood. They're kind of really digging deep to come up with that to yeah. object to Christianity. Right. The, the, let's yeah. put it this way. The truth of Christianity does not hinge on how many animals were in the ark. Right. Christianity is based on the person of Jesus of Nazareth. All right. And that we know details of his life from historical documents that were written around the time of Jesus or close enough to Jesus to get them right, to get the details right. right. And the salient details is that he died and was buried, and he rose again. And he had a group of disciples that he trained to take his message to the rest of the world. Now, I think that Jesus believed in Noah as a historical person, mm -hmm. and that there was a, a flood that killed though that geographical area that's specified in the text, and that people have different ideas about what that amounts to. But nevertheless, I think it's it speaks truthfully about that event, and I think it's curious that you have cultures around the world that have flood stories in their ancient mythologies. You know, mm -hmm. gee, I wonder right. why that's the case. Well, it might be that yeah. there really was a flood. And these stories remained in the cultural history of those groups that expanded from that time. Right. So right. Um, all of these things, give for me, give credibility to the reality of the flood. And I don't think that the Ark concern is the, the kind of concern that some people raise to a great degree because of reading that chapter in, in Whitcomb and Morris's book, The Genesis Flood, I think they did a good idea. They did a good job doing the math. And they were global flood guys, so their task was more challenging than ours, um, right? Than mine, I would say. I don't know your convictions right. on this, but uh, anyway, does uh, does that help at all? Yeah, it does. And uh, what I'm trying to do is just get some errors, put them in my quiver. Good for you. So when these things come up, you know, I can give at least a 
somewhat. Um, okay, yeah, good for you. And uh, intellectual answer. Well, just remember again. Again, I'll emphasize that the the truth of Christianity does not rise or fall on the Genesis flood or Noah's Ark or anything associated with that. Now, there is a question about the credibility or believability of the Scripture with regards to these things, um, and that's mm-hmm. that's no small matter, but it isn't the core. And it could be that we're agnostic about the flood or about the size of the ark or how many animals were there or whether there was a global flood or a local flood. We could be agnostic about that and still be solid on the core issues that really matter. Exactly. All right? Exactly. Okay. All right, there you go. Thank, thank you, sir. All right, buddy. Nice to, nice chat Merry with you. Christmas. <laughs> yeah, happy Christmas Merry to you. Christmas. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, Christmas. It's upon us. It is here. I mean, I don't know if it's the same for you guys as it is for me. You know, I think, oh, it's a month away. Oh, it's three weeks away. Oh, it's two weeks away. I got time. I got time. And then it's two days away. And I haven't done what I need to do. I think I'm ahead of the game this time, though. So principally because of that wonderful invention called Amazon Prime. Just push the button, man. All right. Our final caller of the day. Well, it says Guy, John, and Vicky. Are there three of you on board here? Yes, there are. Oh, okay. Uh, three personalities in one body, or do a three? This isn't a trinity, is it? Just the trinity, yes. Three <laughs> separate, separate but equal. Separate um, equal, all right. <laughs> so uh, am I, have... who am I talking to? John. Okay, hi, John. Um, we have a age-old debate going about uh, if man has free will or if God chooses. Just wanted to have your insight upon that. Woohoo! <laughs> I should have Amy in here with me. Okay, let me put it this way, right out of the gate. Um, the the question is poorly worded, though it is the way that the question is frequently um, offered. Does God choose, or does have man? Does man have free will? Are you a parent, John? Yes, I am. Okay. Is it? Do you have children? Yes, I do. Okay. So is it the case that some things you determine for your kids and some things they get to choose for themselves? Absolutely. Okay. So we're not God. Obviously, we can't determine it in the final, ultimate sense. But that's just a, a an, anal, an, an analogy <laughs> to help you see, I think, the way things are. There, you're asking my view here, um, and and I hold to sovereign grace. So I, I hold to a Calvinistic view of election and a Calvinistic view of being chosen, okay? But notice what I said was, I hold to the view of sovereign grace. I'm talking about salvation. It's certainly possible to have a robust understanding of human freedom, even a libertarian view of freedom, where you, classically, it's characterized as you could do this, or you could have done otherwise. The ability to make choices are is entirely up to you. You're the final arbiter of the choice. Um, you could still have that kind of freedom, even though there are some things you don't end up choosing for yourself, but th- those things get chosen for you. So God can choose certain things and determine the end— even though in other things people can be exercising a robust sense of freedom. Does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, do you follow the total depravity, or are you uh, interjecting some prevenient grace there? Well, understand uh, choice, but are, is man morally free uh, to make that choice of salvation? Right. Okay, so if I believe in sovereign grace, what that means is that the decisive factor of whether a person gets saved, if you want to use that language, is with God, not with the individual. Because if my understanding of biblical anthropology is that if God, uh, if God were to leave it up to each individual to decide for themselves in the fallen state, they would continue unabated in their rebellion against God. And I believe in prevenient grace. If what one means is there is a grace that God gives to everybody, that's not controversial. The question is, what does provenient grace do? And I, the way it's often put into play is, if we have a fallen nature described in which humans are described in Romans chapter three as there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks after God. There, you know, they have the poison of asps on their list. It's a pretty bad look, uh, description, ugly description of God that you see there. Paul is using citing the Old Testament. Okay, well, that's pretty bad. So how can anybody get saved? Well, they've got to have God's work, His grace. Okay, got it. Everybody believes that. Okay, how does that work? Well, if you're Arminian, you take prevenient grace, and it says that God brings everybody halfway. Okay, in other words, He's canceled out the effect, through His grace, of this total rebellion against Him, so that a person now gets to break the tie, so to speak. He gets to decide for himself where he wants to go. So, in that view, God brings everybody halfway, so that we're able to make that decision, apart from the influence of sin, either for or against God, salvation. Um, the problem I have with that is I, I don't find that anywhere in Scripture, that characterization. Yeah, there's, there's grace that God gives to everybody, if you want to call that provenient grace, but it, it, it's not capable of canceling out the work of the fall against a man. That's why Paul talks about the fall in Romans 3 the way he does. Fallen man is this way. In Romans 1, the same thing. They are without excuse. So what's got to happen? God's got to do something. So the question is, how much does God do? And uh, my understanding, the reason that the word elect is used in the Scripture is because God elects somebody for something. They don't elect themselves, God elects them. The reason he uses the word choose or chosen, we are the chosen, is because God is choosing them. He's not choosing or electing them to come halfway. He's choosing and electing them to be the bride of Christ. And and that there is an end that he has predestined for those persons, and that end is to be conformed to the image of his son Jesus. That's Romans 8. I was talking about that earlier. So this language is very, very strong in Scripture. And uh, what God ends up doing then is by an act of his sovereign grace, this is my view, he he reinclines the will, this is the language of some theologians, instead of being against him, to be for him. And then they choose in light of him reinclining their will, but it's an act that he does that guarantees the end, which is their salvation. You might call that ir- you might call that irresistible grace then if you want to. 
I'm curious on why you stayed away from uh, uh, terms like being uh, made alive or born again, as he talks to Nicodemus being born from above. Well, um, I, I wasn't consciously staying away from the language. There's lots of words that you could use. Saved, yeah. regenerated, born again, they all are referring to the same event of salvation, of which it has multiple facets, okay? But what I, what I am holding is that salvation and all that's entailed is secured by God's sovereign, elective, choosing grace. And so God is the one who's ultimately responsible for me being in the condition that I would choose Him. Everyone else is ultimately responsible for being in their condition that they wouldn't choose Him, because they have rebelled against God according to their natures, and therefore they're justifiably punished. And that would be the case for everybody, unless God intervened. The big difference here is both sides believe in an intervention. The issue is whether the intervention—how far does the intervention go? And right. what does the text say about the intervention? That, to me, is primary. What does the text say? And I think a lot of times when people approach this issue, they're asking the wrong questions. They're asking questions like, well, what's the point of evangelism then? Or what kind does that mean that God elects people to go to hell? Or they have all these other what about, what about, what abouts. And I think those are the wrong questions. What we have to ask, the first question is, what does the text seem to say? And I think the text says quite clearly that God elects the elect, <laughs> and that He chooses the chosen, and that it's His responsibility to save. It's a gift of God, not of works and not of us. Now, I, I, I don't go with some people who say that Oh, I think faith is a work. If you want to say you contribute faith, we do contribute faith, but we contribute faith, our trust in Him, in virtue of the fact that God did a sovereign act in our hearts to turn us towards Him. And that guarantees our salvation. So we end up, both sides, the saved and the lost, end up choosing what they will. The lost choose what they will because of their fallen nature, and what they will is not God. The rescued choose what they will, and what they will is to be rescued because God has re has inclined their will, has strengthened their will, has vivified their will in a proper way towards Him, and that's why they choose Him. But God is the one who guarantees the, out the outcome. It's not up to the human being. It's a natural outcome of what God does in their heart. Thank you. That was very helpful. Well, How does I hope that play out in Romans nine through eleven. Yeah, well, there's that's a passage. I think John <clears throat> John ten is a, a important passage, and John six is as well a bread of life discourse. But I actually one of these days I'm going to put it together. I have I have um, a piece of paper in my Bible. Whenever I run across a verse that seems to teach sovereign grace. I write it down, and this little 3 by 5 is filled with all kinds of verse references. Mm. Mark 13, 20, Matthew eleven twenty seven, Colossians 1, 12, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, Ephesians 1, 4, 5, and 11 to 12, Mark, uh, what is this, 13, 20. I got all these verses, and what the reason I wrote the verses down is because they seem to speak plainly about this issue 
Um, John, I, I don't think this is an easy issue for a lot of people because there's controversy. And I think sometimes people focus on the wrong things and, and they're troubled by certain things. I actually think that the concept of sovereign grace, given the nature of the fall and its effect on human beings, um, is really fabulous good news. Because apart from that, God would not be able to guarantee anybody in heaven and guarantee a bride for his son. I, uh, if you guys, John, you and Guy and Vicky are pursuing this, I recommend Kevin DeYoung's book uh, about the, the Council of Dort. It's not very long. But he really does a great job of uh, cashing this out. It's something about grace. Amy, do you have it handy? It's Kevin DeYoung. Yes, grace defined and defended. Grace defined and defended. And he goes all the way back to the remonstrance of the Arminians and the Council of Dort, which was the five points of Calvinism that were a response to the Arminians, and he explains all of the details. So I think that would be a great source to go to from a Calvinistic perspective to decide who you think is making the better case. All right. So thank you for your call, John, and thanks for listening in, Guy and Vicki. And uh, hope that helps you. We're all out of time, though. There's my music. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Happy Christmas to all, and to all, a good night.